if we didn't believe that we were somehow more important, that we were not so special in this whole natural world, our whole world would look different. Welcome to The One You Feed. Throughout time, great thinkers have recognized the importance of the thoughts we have. Quotes like, garbage in, garbage out, or you are what you think, ring true. And yet, for many of us, our thoughts don't strengthen or empower us. We tend toward negativity, self-pity, jealousy, or fear. We see what we don't have instead of what we do. We think things that hold us back and dampen our spirit. But it's not just about thinking. Our actions matter. It takes conscious, consistent, and creative effort to make a life worth living. This podcast is about how other people keep themselves moving in the right direction, how they feed their good wolf. Being active is more important than ever, and that's why I am excited to introduce On, perhaps the best kept secret in the running world. I love these shoes. I have been buying them for four years, and I don't buy anything else. They were founded in 2010 in Zurich, Switzerland, and it's the fastest growing running brand globally. Their philosophy is that you should run how you were born to run. Instead of correcting your movement, on shoes react to your individual running motion. As I said, I love these shoes. I use them for trail running, for all uh, running on the streets, and just day-to-day wear. They are amazing. And on is offering our listeners an exclusive offer. Try the shoes or gear for up to 30 days commitment-free. Head to on-running.com slash feed and pick your favorite shoes and apparel items. Apply the code TRYONFEED at checkout to test your new products for 30 days. Love them, keep them. Not convinced? Send them back for a full refund. That's on-running.com slash feed and the promo code is TRYONFEED. Thanks for joining us. Our guest this week is Taoist monk Yoon Ro, formerly known as Arthur Rosenfeld. He's an author, activist, and a 35-year master of Taoist arts. Yoon Ro was born in America and ordained a monk at the Pure Yang Temple in Guangzhou, China. Combining his spiritual focus with a Yale literary education, he's an author on the cultural, social, and spiritual dimensions of Eastern thinking for the Western world. And here's the interview with Yoon Ro. Hi, Yoon Ro. Welcome to the show. So happy to be with you. I'm excited to get you on because one of my favorite books of all time. Oh, hang on a second. We got Sorry, a dog making noise. <laughs> well, when my turtles start breaking wind in the background, I won't feel so bad. <laughs> I'm excited to talk to you because one of my favorite books of all time is the Tao Te Ching, but I've never really had a chance to learn a whole lot more about Taoism or talk to anybody who is a Taoist. So I am excited to get into that book a little bit and some of your other philosophies. That'd be great. It's one of my favorite books to talk about, even though every word we say is not the Tao. That's right. That's right. But let's start like we always do with a parable. There's a grandfather who's talking with his grandson. He says, in life, there are two wolves inside of us that are always at battle. One is a good wolf, which represents things like kindness and bravery and love. And the other is a bad wolf, which represents things like greed and hatred and fear. And the grandson stops and he thinks about it for a second. And he looks at his grandfather and he says, well, grandfather, which one wins? 
and the grandfather says, the one you feed. So I'd like to start off by uh, asking you what that parable means to you in your life and in your work, and also what are some of the things that you do in your own life to feed your good wolf? So I should start by saying that I, I love the bad wolf. <laughs> and, and, and I love the bad wolf because I love the dual, non-dual nature of everything. And as a Taoist, I tend to see things in terms of binary opposites harmoniously interacting. And we want to make them harmoniously interact, but sometimes disharmoniously interacting in order to define each other and also the cycles of life. And without those cycles, we would have much less to appreciate and experience. And without that bad wolf, there would be no good wolf. Right. So with, without, you know, our cloudy days, we don't see, appreciate the sunny ones. And by the way, there's, an, I think, an important distinction between appreciating and experiencing. So I wouldn't say, for example, that someone who has never known heartbreak or disease or challenge is someone who doesn't experience joy or pleasure or satisfaction in life. But I might argue, I think cogently, that the appreciation of that experience would be greatly diminished without something to compare it to. Yeah, that makes so, sense. Yeah, so, I mean, one of the lovely things about bringing traditional Taoist thinking into our high-tech quantum world these days is to see how very often in my wide-ranging listening and readings I come across a validation and confirmation in terms of science, basic science, tech, world exploration, universal exploration of, of things that have been expressed very clearly, if not in the same language, for thousands of years in Taoist, in Taoist texts in the Taoist canon. So, you know, to me, there it's not so much that you want to make a habit of feeding one wolf to the exclusion of the other. It might be that in one circumstance in your life, you want to starve the good wolf. And in another, you want to starve the bad wolf. And in many others, you want to feed one a little bit more than you feed the other. You want to play favorites. You want to be conscious and active in this process of feeding. Because what you see and experience and understand in the cycles and changes in your daily life ought to be cueing you to what you're doing with your kibble. <laughs> so would you give your summary of what Taoism is? This actually is a far more challenging question than you, you may know. You may, you may know how challenging it is, and you just did it to make me squirm. But, <laughs> you may also, but you may also not realize that it is, to some extent, a debated issue. In a broad way, Taoism is a, is a cultural and social phenomenon. And it, it is inextricably intertwined in traditional Chinese culture. And it is born of um, life in China, um, the bitter uh, life 
of the people in early China, the flooding of rivers, the conquests, the famines, the droughts, the difficulties, the invasions, the constant pushback against uh, the people who, uh, nomads on horseback who uh, ringed China for, for millennia and created a certain nucleation of culture in that enormous uh, piece of land. And without some understanding of the history of China and how things developed there, I, I would submit that a deep comprehension of Taoist thought is not possible. Now, you know, it's funny because I, I have two Taoist masters, and one of them is my martial arts master, and another one is my abbot. And we, we could talk, if it's, if it's relevant, we can talk more detail about that later. But, but you know, they, they both always tell me that, you know, the ideas of Taoism, of harmony, of balance, they don't really depend on even calling it Taoism. They don't, they, it doesn't matter whether you know anything about China or you know anything. And, and although they say that, and I bow to them and respect them greatly uh, and love them both very much, I have to say that on this score, I don't fully agree. And I think that the reason that they think that is that they are Chinese and their whole worldview is so colored by being Chinese that they may not see that from the same point of view as we do. So let, let's, let's say it this way. Taoism is a way of looking at nature. It is a way of understanding natural forces and natural phenomena and a way of integrating what you see and feel, smell, taste, and hear so that you can live a healthier, more compassionate, humbler, and more frugal life. How's that? That is a great start. Most of my exposure to Eastern, um, you know, philosophy or religion has largely been through, you know, various schools of Buddhism. But like I said, I've always loved the the Tao Te Ching. But what does what does Taoist meditation look like? Is that a is that something you practice? And if so, what is that? What what? How do you do that? How is that different or similar, maybe, to some of the other meditation styles out there? So yes, I do it. It's a core practice. Um, I, I would say, you know, there's a, there's a few things that come to mind because you mentioned Buddhism. And what it looks like um, is that you may see Taoists standing or walking as opposed to sitting or lying down, which is not to say that Taoist meditation can't also be uh, conducted prone or in a seat, but we prefer, uh, we prefer to stand or walk if possible. And that is because there's a connection in Taoism, which I think is really quite different from Buddhist meditation. And, and I've studied some Buddhist meditation. In fact, one of my twin Taoist uh, lineages is uh, a version of Taoism, which is sort of all encompassing. Um, it's called Longman Pai. It's also known as complete truth as the sort of overarching uh, idea of it. And this complete truth sect, if you will, includes some Buddhist and some Confucian ideas. So, so there's, there's some bleed over. But a core thing that I want to get to is that in, in Taoist meditation, the notion is that in order to awaken the mind, in order to achieve what, what we would term 
enlightenment. We don't have that exact phrase, but what, what, what we might call it enlightenment in the West, to open the mind, to awaken the mind. In order to do that, we have to do a lot for the body because it is the body that supports the process of enlightenment. In other words, you can't have the strength and clarity of mind that you need uh, without having a strong and healthy body. So, for example, something like zazen sitting in Zen, where you damage your knees and hurt your back, and you use the strength of your mind to force your body into an uncomfortable position and ask it to stay there for a long period and then have to have a knee replacement later or back surgery. But you can point to how strong your mind is. It triumphed over the flesh. That sort of Descartian dualism about mind-body um, is not present in, in Taoist thinking. And in fact, we find it difficult to understand why anyone would want to do that. So we want to nurture the body in order to help the mind. The world is changing faster and faster today, and there's so much uncertainty. And one of the skills that we need to deal with it is to be able to learn things quickly. And the best way I've found to do that is Blinkist. Blinkist is a unique and powerful app that works on your phone, your tablet, or your web browser. And basically what they do is give you the best key takeaways, the need-to-know information from over 3,000 nonfiction bestsellers. They can Condense them down into blinks, which you can read or listen to in just 15 minutes. I've found it really helpful for me over the last few weeks to really get up to speed a lot more on racial issues in this country. They've got a ton of great books out there that you can look at, like The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi, White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo, and so many more. And now they've got a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash wolf to start your free seven-day trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership and up to 65% off audiobooks that are yours to keep forever. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash wolf to get 25% off a premium membership and a seven-day free trial. Blinkist.com slash wolf. The people who drive industries, entertainment, and culture shape our world every day in bold and dramatic ways. But did you ever wonder how they got there? Behind the Talent features in-depth conversations with people who identify and develop talent, the people who find the people that shape our world. Guests include big league sports scouts, rock star talent agents, and CIA officers. Uncovering the skills and challenges that unite them all is the job of host David Mead, He's an expert speaker and educator, and he brings his own curiosity and insights to each interview to expand our understanding of what it means to be a recruiter in today's world of work. Brought to you by Indeed.com, Behind the Talent is a must-listen for anyone interested in the secrets behind identifying talent and unlocking potential in individuals and organizations. Subscribe to Behind the Talent now, wherever you get your podcasts. And now back to the rest of the interview with Yoon Rowe.
In addition to being a Taoist monk and a prolific author, you are also, I don't know what the quite the right term is, but I'll say a Tai Chi master. Um, you, you teach a lot of Tai Chi, which I think is a form of Taoist meditation. Is that accurate? It is somewhat accurate. It's not exactly a form of Taoist meditation, although Tai Chi practice does include specific meditations that are by definition Taoist, since Taoism is the overarching idea or maybe put a different way, I, I'm not aware of any system of movement anywhere in any tradition. There may be one, but I'm not aware of it. Anywhere in the world, from any period of history, that is more intimately interdigitated with a system of philosophy and thought than Tai Chi Chuan Tai Chi is with Taoism. They are inextricable. So the practice of Tai Chi is one of the Taoist practices that I engage. It's my favorite one. It's the one I probably spend the most time at. But its importance to me personally and to my students, because I run what I call a martial arts, uh, rather a philosophy school with a major in martial arts, rather than a martial arts school that pays lip service to philosophy, the most important part of it is as, as a Taoist practice. So whether we are doing brush painting or landscape painting or calligraphy or playing a, a musical instrument or writing or uh, standing in meditation or practicing with a seven-foot sword, all these things fall under the umbrella in, in my own life practice and teaching of, of Taoist practice. Okay. Here will be a geeky question. Do you have a favorite translation of the Tao Te Ching? Because I have one, and I'm curious if, it, if they are similar or what you think of the one that I really like. I could almost reach out and touch from where I'm sitting. 66 translations. Wow. All right. So mine is the Stephen Mitchell translation. Right. That was a pretty good guess. I, I guessed it might be. Um, <laughs> and I think it's good. You know, I like Mitchell's writing style. I like, I like the poetry of his prose. Mm -hmm. So from an from an aesthetic point of view, I like that version too. But it's not that alone because I'm a fan of the science fiction and fantasy writer Ursula Le Guin, who also did a translation which was based on somebody else's translation. I don't I don't believe that she reads um, Chinese, but uh, I, I don't care for that one. Uh, much as I like her other writings, I, I didn't care for that one. And I mentioned that in, con in the connection with Mitchell because I think Mitchell has some grasp of what's going on and has a point of view, which I respect. You know, I, I have to say that if you had asked me this, I, I've, been, I've been involved in this quite some years now. And if you had asked me this five years ago or 10 years ago or 15 years ago, I might have been super eager to give you a list and say, hey, these are the ones, right? Read these, these are the and, and what, I've, what I've come to over time and with some thousands of hours of practice and meditation about these things is that it's such, we, we are so far from really understanding what the context of that book was, who wrote it, um, what its purpose was, and what it might have sounded like in the language of the day. My guess, I can tell you what I guess. I can tell you what I, I surmise about that book's origins. Um, before I go there, I will tell you that 
I think for most people, Guy Leakley's version, uh, L-E-E-K-L-E-Y, is probably a great place to start. It's a wonderful edition. Um, Mitchell's is good. Jonathan uh, Starr has got a good one. Um, there, there are, and, and you know, we, we can maybe email and you can put up, if you wish, uh, a list of some others I like. But, but let me go back to the sort of the point about the whole book. I, whether or not the putative author of the Tao Te Ching was a real historical personage is an open question, as indeed is the historicity of a lot of other things that people say about that book. Um, I, I choose, because I have a romantic heart, to believe that Lao Tzu was a real person, but intellectually I doubt it. Um, and, and in fact, the book that I wrote about Lao Tzu that is going to be released tomorrow is predicated on the decision that I was just going to embody him and envision him and indeed tell a love story about him as a sage who is in search of a soulmate and the difficulties of being such an enlightened personage and finding somebody with whom you can have that kind of connection. But I think that historically, probably, um, he was a creation of a coffee clatch of guys who were responding to the Confucian, draconian, highly regimented and ordered society of China at that time. So maybe you could think of it this way. If you believe that Jesus Christ, for example, or Moses were actual historical personages, you could see and become attached to their message with greater avidity and warmth and enthusiasm than if you found out that, um, you know, Jesus was really an amalgam of a bunch of rabbis who were writing at the time, and they were pretty much fed up with being told what to eat and, you know, with whom to sleep and uh, what to wear and, and, you know, how to pray and so on. And so his message of release and freedom and forgiveness is in some ways analogous historically and socially to the message of Lao Tzu uh, at the time, whether he was a real single person or whether he was a construct designed to put forth a point of view that was like just a great relief to people. Um, so, you know, Confucian society was quite regimented as early, early Orthodox Judaism was and is. And, and so, you know, being offered a way to still be considered a good person, a religious person, in the case of Christianity, a God-fearing person, and yet have some personal freedom and have the ability to be bacchanalian and go into the mountains and meditate in the cave if you want and drink wine and write poetry and do all those things, but still be considered a worthy person. This was the attraction of that early Taoist message and maybe the power of the Tao Te Ching and why both the Tao Te Ching and the Judeo-Christian Bible have become, from what I hear, the two most widely translated works in the world. Yeah, we had a guest on Edward Slingerland who wrote a book called Trying Not to Try, and he, he talks about a lot of 
ancient Chinese philosophy, Confucianism and Taoism. And, but he has a funny line in there where he refers to the Tao Te Ching as possibly the book that more joints have been rolled to than any other book in history. <laughs> which I thought so was when, funny. The minute you say that, I, I think of Tai Chi joint locking, of course, and rolling the shoulder over into the guy's <laughs> Di- uncle. But D- yes, different I, joint here. Different joint, yes. Well, you know, I actually um, corresponded with Professor Slingerland once or twice, um, and I did hear his interview on your show, and I liked it. It was very interesting. So I'm going to read a section from the Tao Te Ching and just kind of ask you to elaborate or you know talk about kind of what it means to you, and this will be from... The, the Stephen Mitchell translation. It is number 44. Right. Fame or integrity, which is more important? Money or happiness, which is more valuable? Success or failure, which is more destructive? If you look to others for fulfillment, you will never truly be fulfilled. If your happiness depends on money, you will never be happy with yourself. Be content with what you have. Rejoice in the way things are. When you realize there is nothing lacking... The whole world belongs to you. Do you see how deeply revolutionary and rebellious that is? Oh, yeah. Yes, I, I, I do. I, <laughs> I, I read it as an 18-year-old probably in a suburban town that was, you know, it's, it, in my view of the world, that's all anybody cared about at that point was, was money, which was not true, but that was, my, that was my view of it. So I do recognize that this was, for me, this was very revolutionary, um, and I'm sure far more so in in a uh, age like the one you're talking about when he when it was originally written. So if, if I if I may, I want to just talk to you about this from a personal point of view. Please. I was raised in a home with a very very successful, famous father. My dad, uh, Isidore Rosenfeld, he's still with us, um, was you know one of the most famous. Uh, heart specialists in the world for many years. And he had as his patients, and not only, but among his patients, he had many uh, luminous individuals, people who, you know, ran the world, uh, uh, you know, captains of industry and Hollywood stars and, and powerful politicians and heads of state and so on. And I watched as a, as a young man, as a boy, I watched a parade of these folks through the lives of my family. I saw, you know, them in our home. We, we would take holidays on their islands and their yachts and, and travel the world in their company. And probably because like you, I was born with a certain gene, which made me a real pain in the ass (laughs) to my parents. Um, I had, my doubts about all this. And I had my doubts that if these things that I was being told were true, were in fact the way the world really did work, and if fame and, and wealth and, and power and, and beauty and notoriety and all the rest of it, if all, all that was really the be-all, end-all, the purpose, the thing for which we should strive and so on. Then how come so many of these people that I saw growing up were so miserable? Right. How come, you know, they threw their wives down the stairs or they went to jail or their parents or their, their children hated them or, or you know, they, they were just assholes. And, and you know what? This is not true of this was not true of all the people that I'm talking about. Right. There were many wonderful people among them. But I was 
I was able to, I think, at that tender age, separate to tease out the the good characteristics of the people that I thought were great um, from the ones that I didn't think were so good, and to realize that there was no connection there to uh, to their fame and, and and the rest of it. Right. So I think you know early on what what you what you have alluded to, I believe, and what I I experienced, I know, was you know sort of the path a seeker the seeker in us, the, the, the calling of the seeker, the personality of the seeker, whatever, whatever you like. In fact, Guy Leakley's Tao Te Ching that I recommended to you earlier. Unfortunately, Guy Leakley was a good friend of mine and he passed away just a short while ago. And it was very sad to, to lose him because he was a wonderful scholar and writer on the Tao Te Ching. But anyway, you know, I, I think if those things weren't true, what else wasn't true? Right. Think of Guy because he titled his Tao Te Ching, you know, a version for all seekers. So, you know, people who are listening, I, I would get, I would guess, I would bet that, you know, people who listen to this podcast of yours, and, and I, I know a few, and I'm an ardent listener myself, I, you know, I think that people who listen are seekers. Right. Um, I mean, you, and, and you obviously must be a seeker, one or both of you, otherwise you wouldn't have this, this show. So, you know, I think knowing, knowing that you have this suspicion deep suspiciousness, knowing that you recognize that the speed and greed culture in which we live, which is guided very much by our corporate masters, their lobbyists, um, their control of media and so on, happily not this medium um, yet, is a relief. And, and, and the Tao Te Ching, for me, and I don't know if it did this for you, I don't know how early you discovered it, but for me... When I discovered this book, you know, 30, 40 years ago and began to read it, I realized that I was, I was too young and insecure to have confidence in my own way of looking at the world. I, didn't, I wasn't sure about what I saw. I wasn't sure about what, what I believed. And just finding out that there was this entire body of thought, which so completely validated that, you know, what I was seeing in the world, you know, the questioning of, of our uh, capitalist materialist society and its values, but also a lot of other things in our Judeo-Christian tradition. For example, you know, the biblical notion of hegemony for human beings over the natural world, something that is written and spoken of often these days in environmentalist and climate change circles, right? right. That if, if we didn't have a point of view that this is all here for us and that, you know, we can, we can kill all the rhinos we want to grind up their horns um, so that we'll perform better in bed. We can do kill all the bears we want to do the same with their gallbladders. You know, we can take all the deer we want for the same reason. We can cure cancer by grinding up the shells of every endangered turtle in the world and all that. If we, if we, if people didn't really somehow think that, and, and, you know, I used a lot of examples there from Chinese medicine, but this is a thread that goes through from our Western culture to, um, to the East is the idea that if, if we, if we didn't believe that we were somehow more important and that wasn't, that we were not so special in this whole natural world, something that Taoism doesn't exactly believe, at least not the same way. Right. And our environment would look completely different. 
Yeah. And our whole world would look different. So these are big, important ideas. Yeah. It's that whole idea that it's, that it's not connected, that this thing over there does not connect to this thing over here. You know, we don't connect to the environment, I think, is what's missing from so much of modern thought. I love Perfect Bars. I've talked about them before on here, how much I love them, how many of them I've eaten, which is an extraordinary number. But there's not just Perfect Bars. The company, Perfect Snacks, make a variety of products like protein bars, peanut butter cups, and kids' snack bars. And they're all made with freshly ground nut butter, organic honey, and 20 organic superfoods. You're sure to find something that you'll love. Of course, my favorite is the standard Perfect Bar dark chocolate, chip peanut butter, although their peanut butter cups are amazing too, and you keep them in the fridge and so they're cold. If you're not already convinced, they're also non-GMO, project verified, they're gluten-free, they're soy-free, they're kosher, and they're low GI, and they are delicious. So right now, Perfect Snacks is offering 15% off your online order. Just go to perfectsnacks.com slash wolf. Shop their refrigerated snacks at perfectsnacks.com slash wolf today to get 15% off your order. We want you to be prepared for snack time. So go to perfectsnacks.com slash wolf to stock up and save 15%. So this business of connecting is very interesting from a Taoist perspective because it can be interpreted, and it should be, two different ways. Or not two different ways, but on two different levels. The first is the non-dual, which is to say that, you know, everything is one, everything is connected. Um, and And, you know, we were talking, or I'll come back to the other in a second. We were talking about Lao Tzu a moment ago and about this, you know, Lao Tzu means the old boy, the old master, the great sage. Um, and it's it's really a title more than it is a name. He had a family name, but who knows if it's real. Um, but, you know, his job, this this putative author of this book that we both love so much, his job in at the time of, of the Eastern Zhou dynasty, so let's call it five or 600 BC, uh, maybe maybe a little bit later. Um, his job was, he was a fortune teller. He was a librarian and an oracle. This is how I render him, by the way, in my novel, Yin, and I had great fun with it. But Long years. Long years, right? Yeah, which, by the way, probably refers to his Burmese origins he may have come from well he was supposed to have come from the state of chu uh, and in those days before there was a china um china didn't come around for another 300 years or so um and and that area is is what now we would call myanmar i, I just came back from there but anyway so Lao was a fortune teller and and his job might have been and this speaks to your question or your point about connection to the world his job was likely to advise the king now remember, this was not an emperor. This was a hegemon, a a a a ba. He was a, a strong man, a local king, one of maybe uh, some hundreds that existed in the area we now call China. These were fiefdoms, small kingdoms, and and so his his king was likely to have said to him something like, "Hey, 
I don't have enough troops to protect our entire border, but I'm worried that we're going to be attacked by a neighboring kingdom or somebody else. Tell me, where should I put my troops? And this is an example of this that I often use talking about this. And, you know, so Laozi would have gone down to the river and uh, the capital of this, this dynasty was at that time in, in, in Luoyang, in an early capital of China. And, and he, he would have watched the river and he might have seen, for example, some mica in the sand at the bottom of the clear running water. And he might have known that that mica or some other little glimmering mineral that he saw in the sand came from the high moraine, high up, uh, you know, in the mountains above this kingdom. And he would know that if he saw those little shimmering bits of rock in the water, it meant that they were being washed down from the mountains, which in turn meant that the snow was melting. And if the snow was melting early, that meant that mountain passes that might be normally impenetrable at a certain time of year would now be available, passable. And so he might rush back to the king and say, hey, put the soldiers to the north. That's where the mountains are. And in fact, there's going to be a surprise attack. Get ready, you know, for ambush them. And, and so the king, you know, would listen to him because he would trust him and know he was wise and observed nature, nature, and human nature. I make the artificial distinction just to make the point. And, and so the king would go ahead and put his troops there. And, you know, it would work out. These bad guys would come through the pass. They'd be slaughtered. The kingdom would be saved. Lao Tzu would get another uh, hundred concubines and uh, some tails <laughs> of gold. And, yeah, right, right. So, so one sense of connecting with nature was to be watchful and sensitive to it, right? To see our own fates, in the melting of the snow and the sign of the river. Right. But another very, very specifically Taoist idea, which is regrettably absent from the Judeo-Christian model, although there are certainly some uh, Jewish and Christian people who espouse this idea, mm -hmm. is the idea of stewardship. So the idea that we would not be given this world as our sandbox, our playpen, but rather we would be given by dint of our intellect and our abilities, we would be given stewardship of it. And this is an, this is an idea that goes back to Neolithic, tribal, you know, proto-religious times, goes back to the South Pacific Islanders and their chieftains and their chiefdoms. It goes back to a lot of Aboriginal societies. The Aboriginal people of Australia still have these ideas very clearly about, you know, our, our role in things, not just that we are connected and will suffer uh, at the hands of nature with a capital N, but that there is a binary back and forth flow of traffic between us and nature and that we are so actually part of it that to say us and nature is to create a, a dual structure that doesn't even exist. Our role in the play is to be stewards. I, I love that about Taoism. And it's, and it's very clearly connected to deep ecology and other things that have come about much more recently. And by the way, there are Taoist scholars who don't like this idea at all and think that what I'm saying is very much wishful thinking on the part of an, uh, an American guy 
living at the uh, you know on the edge of environmental cataclysm. But there are other scholars who who support it. Excellent. Thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been a really enjoyable conversation. I think we'll uh, keep in touch via email because I've got a bunch more questions for you over time. <laughs> your uh, your book comes out tomorrow. Now, when listeners listen to this, it won't be tomorrow. It will already be out. It so will already. It's yeah. called Yin, and it's uh, it's it's a novel that weaves a lot of these Taoist concepts in. And uh, I really, I'm not a hundred percent finished. I'm about. 85% of the way through and I have really enjoyed it. I think it's a it's a love story. It's got the Taoist concepts and uh and it's got some humor in it. So it's uh it's a really well written and I encourage the listeners to check it out. And we'll have uh links to that as well as the Tao Te Ching and other things on the show notes. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Take care. Take care. Bye. You can learn more about Yunro and this podcast at oneufeed.net slash Yunro. That's Y-U-N-R-O-U. Thanks.